Uh, so we're, we're not having Thrive next week, which means that we're not really trying to start any kind of new series. Um, we're kind of just in between things right now. Um, and so you're probably all waiting with bated breath to figure out what the topic is for tonight. Um, and we are going to look at the book of Revelation. Um, and in fact, we're going to do an overview of the whole book tonight. Um, last week, if you were here, we had a special guest speaker who came and spoke on the second coming uh, based out of Matthew 24 um, from Matthew, one of the biographies of Jesus. And uh, tonight we're going to look at Revelation. And um, this book is a book that is probably reputed as being one of the most confusing books to understand in the Bible. In fact, uh, when I say the book of Revelation, just, you know, shout it out. What kind of things come to mind for you? Giant locusts. Okay, so I heard giant locusts, dragons, war. What other things? No more seas. Uh, Jesus. Very good. Very good. Sunday school answer. Uh, anything else? Anything else that comes to mind? Death. Okay. Okay. Fiery lake. Fiery lake. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are all good. Um, one thing. One thing that comes up quite often, I actually said it already, is the word confusion. Um, yeah, you know, some of you have probably heard me give this message if you're from Thrive Kitsap, but you know, they say if it's worth saying, it's worth repeating. If it's worth repeating, it's worth saying. Um, and so, sometimes hearing something a second time is good. Uh, so, you know, that's absolutely right that, that, that the book of Revelation is reputed as being one of the most confusing, one of the most difficult books in the Bible. It actually is said that the reason the book of Revelation is at the end of the Bible is that you have to have read all the other books before to understand it. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But what I want to start out with tonight is just to say that the book of Revelation is actually not a book that's meant to confuse you. And the reason I say that is that the word revelation literally just means unveiling. So what Revelation is, is a book that is a book that unveils the, the true nature of reality. It's a little bit like a curtain that's pulled back on what reality is really like. Did this thing just get uh, even louder? Can you guys hear me a little more? Okay, wow. I, just, I feel like I have so much power in this microphone here. So, so Revelation is a book that's not meant to confuse you. <laughs> it's a book that's meant to unveil what reality truly is. The book of Revelation unveils the end of history, it unveils the destiny of humanity, and it unveils, most importantly, Jesus. When Jesus came the first time, you know, he was unveiled in a sense, you know, we got to see him in the flesh, and he came not as one who came to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when Jesus died on the cross, and when he rose again three days later, he fulfilled that mission in his first coming. But the book of Revelation points to the fact that, as, as Jesus himself said, the Messiah was to come not just once to suffer, but that he would come again to enter into his glory. And this is the Jesus that we see in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation shows Jesus coming not to bear judgment. That's what he did the first time when he bore our sin and our punishment on the cross. In the book of Revelation, Jesus comes not to bear judgment, but to bring judgment on those who have rejected him and bring, to, bring salvation to those who've believed in him. And so this is why this book is so powerful. I mean, what this shows us is that Jesus is not just another moral teacher. He's not just another Buddha. He's not just another Gandhi. He's not just another Muhammad. He's not just a mere man. You know, he's not just the, the Jesus with suave, wavy hair from Hollywood movies. I mean, no, the Jesus in the book of Revelation is alive. 
And he's the Jesus who's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And this is why this book is so powerful. This is the God that we worship. And so what I want to do is um, I want to just walk us through an overview of this book tonight. And uh, what I want to start with is looking at a couple of things and just the first three verses that this book says about itself. And I want to actually show you that if you look at even the first three verses closely and carefully, you will know probably... (laughs) I mean, a good 25, 30% of, of, of kind of the need to know of this book. There's a lot you can learn in just those first three verses. So we're going to look at those first three verses. And then we're going to look at an overview of the whole book. And then if we have time at the end, we'll have time for some Q&A. So uh, the first thing I want to do tonight is I want to actually see what this book says about itself. What does the book say about itself? And so to do that, I'm going to read these first three verses. If you have a Bible, I really want to encourage you to follow along with me tonight because we're going to be flipping through a whole number of chapters of this book since it's an overview. So let me read the first three verses. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So what I want to actually do is is involve you all. You know, being a Christian is not a spectator sport. Um, It's not about being a a, a pew potato, you might say. So I want to actually, like, get some interaction going tonight. Um... Turn, turn to someone next to you, and, and hopefully you're, you actually can have a Bible in front of you and look at this together. And I just want you to point out, like, what, name as many things as you can that you learn about this book just from the first three verses. As many things as you learn about this book just from the first three verses. So uh, turn to someone next to you. You know, if you're like, man, I don't feel like I know the Bible very well, and I don't really know if I have much to share, you can just listen in. You know, no need for everyone to actually share something. But just, yeah, turn to some people around you, and just let's just do a little bit of group Bible study. So just take maybe like a minute and uh, see what you guys can come up with. Okay, I'm going to bring us back together. So, what did you find out? Just, 
Uh, just by shouting it out, just tell me what, what it is that you've learned just by looking at the first three verses of this book. The time is near, okay. Near and soon, okay. And, and what, what are you referring to? Like, what is coming soon? The time. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. Okay, this is good. Keep, keep, uh, keep going, keep going. Yeah, okay. It says that this is a book about things that must take place. It's a prophecy, yep. It's a revelation, okay. There's where the name of this book comes from, the very first word. It's from Jesus, okay. We'll be, we'll be blessed as heck, I'm quoting you, uh, if we read it and understand it, Okay. Anything else? It's about Jesus, yes. Given through Jesus by God? <laughs> Hashtag blessed. Uh, any, any last comments? Any last thoughts? Okay, now this is good. Now what you're doing here, this is called inductive Bible study. And in an inductive Bible study, what you're doing is you're actually just looking at what the text says. And, uh, you know, when, you, when you're, like, by yourself reading your Bible, one of the things you can do is you can do this. You can just do what we've done. Just take a piece of paper and just make, like, a bullet point list of all the facts that you learn uh, just by looking at what the text says. And then you take those facts, you interpret them, and then you kind of get a picture of what, what it's saying. And so that's just what we're going to do. I'm just going to walk through some things that this book says about itself. So look at verse 1. In verse 1, we find out the author of this book is a guy named John. And uh, based on the testimony of the early church fathers, you know, we were pretty sure that this guy's the Apostle John. Uh, so the guy who also wrote the Gospel of John and the three letters of John. And it doesn't tell you exactly when John wrote, but if you were to jump over to verse 9 in this first chapter here, here's something that John tells us about himself. He says, I, John, your brother and companion and the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So Patmos, this is a little island that's off the coast of Turkey. And according to church tradition, John was exiled there for being a Christian during the time of Domitian. Now Domitian, he was a Roman emperor who reigned from 81 AD to 96 AD. Um, and so for this reason, many believe that Revelation was written around that time. Um, you know, I think according to one early church historian, they say it was about 95 AD. So this is uh, right toward the very end of the first century. And, and what else does this book tell us about itself? If you just walk through these first three verses again, I just want to give you tonight a list of five things that this book says are true about itself. So just follow along with me here. The very first thing, and some of you already alluded to this, is that Revelation is a Christ-centered book. Now, over the years, down through the centuries, uh, this book has sometimes been called the Revelation of St. John the Divine. And uh, I'm sorry to tell you, St. John uh, was not divine. And uh, I guess he was a saint, because everyone who's a believer in Jesus is a saint. Uh, but, but this book actually says that it's not, it's not the revelation of John the divine. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And what that tells you is that the book of Revelation is a book that's all about Jesus. Jesus is the center of the book. I mean, don't get sidetracked with weird theories. Don't get sidetracked with all kinds of questions about what does the beast mean and what does the dragon mean and 
oh my gosh, who is 666? Revelation is a Christ-centered book. It's a regal book. It's a book that lifts Jesus higher than almost any other book in the Bible. You know, like you go to chapters 4 and 5, and this is a part of the book where John has a vision of the heavenly throne room, and he sees millions and millions and millions of creatures in all creation praising and worshiping Jesus. And most climactic of all is in chapter 19, where Jesus actually comes back to rule and to reign. So this is a book that's all about Jesus. He's the very center of this book. So that's the first characteristic, is that Revelation is a Christ-centered book. Another critical characteristic of this book, this was also mentioned by someone out here, it's a book of prophecy. It's a book of prophecy. So if you go to verse 1, you see that again. And you find out here that John, uh, what the revelation that John receives, it reveals what must soon take place. And in fact, if you go through this book, there are at least five other places where Revelation calls itself a prophecy. You know, there's a slide there that shows you those places if you want to just take note of those. And so there's obviously a little bit of debate, you know, how much of this book is prophetic, how much of it talks about the future. But what we know is that at least parts of this book pertain to things to come. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why this book is such an encouragement to Christians, because if you're an atheist, if you actually think through what an atheistic worldview would say, there really is not any way to know the end of history. I mean, there's actually atheists who will admit this. And I'm not trying to knock, by the way, on on just other belief systems, but I just want to point out to you that that even those uh, who are within sort of a position of unbelief themselves would admit that um, it's impossible to actually find any meaning in history um, if, unless there's some kind of other belief system that allows that to, to be the case. So, for example, uh, this is a, a famous atheist named John Gray. He's a, he's a philosopher who says that, that trying to find meaning in history is like looking for patterns in the clouds. Or here's another guy. This is Richard Dawkins. And, and his, his belief is that the past, the present, and the future is ultimately at the mercy of random chance. And he, this is what he says. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. But the book of Revelation claims to be a book that reveals past, present, and future. And so what this means is that the Bible is actually more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper. And for Christians, the, the, the amazing, amazing thing that this means for us is that the future that the Bible predicts in the book of Revelation is a future that actually offers hope. And the last chapters of the book show that. Like, the last chapters of the book show us that there's going to be a day when God is going to set everything right, where all evil will be destroyed, when all tears will be wiped away from every eye, and when everything sad will be made untrue. And this is why years ago, Billy Graham said, you know, I've read the last page of the Bible, and it's all going to turn out all right. This is what we have through this book. This is not something that the the secular world can claim, but the book of Revelation claims like you can look to the very, very end and see it's all going to turn out all right. So it's pretty cool. So that's the second characteristic. It's a book of prophecy. And now just a few more I'm going to walk through really quick. So so we've seen it's a Christ-centered book. We've seen it's a prophetic book. It's also a symbolic book. So again, in verse 1, it says that uh, God made it known By sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, another way you could translate this is that he sent and signified it. And and that word, signified, or it can also mean made known, it's a Greek word that suggests that Revelation uses symbols to communicate its meaning. 
And this, by the way, is why the book is filled with all kinds of symbols. You know, there's dragons and beasts and and lions and lambs and dragons and all kinds of things. And, and, And these images are not just made up. They represent actual realities. And and what that means is that contrary to the opinions of some, you can actually understand what the symbols are about. And the reason for that is that the Bible tells you what they mean. The Bible interprets them for you. And, And with this book or with any book in Scripture, the most trustworthy principle is always to let Scripture interpret Scripture. To let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let me just give you an example of how these symbols in Revelation can actually be understood by just seeing what the Bible says uh, itself about them. So, let me just go to one place here. This is in Revelation chapter 12. And in Revelation chapter 12, let me just read uh, these couple of verses here. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, this seems like a very kind of like opaque passage. You know, what on earth does this mean? There's a woman, there's like a sun and a star and a moon and all these things around her head, and then there's a dragon. You know, dragons don't exist. What's this about? Well, hold on, hold your horses. The Bible just goes on and tells you what all this means. So if you actually were to keep reading, let me show you this verse from uh, the same chapter, just a few verses down. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So here, the book of Revelation is actually telling you, oh, like if you're wondering what the dragon means, the dragon is Satan, the dragon is the devil. Now, there's another symbol that we read about. There's this woman. And this is an instance where instead of the book of Revelation telling you, the Bible would have you go back to other parts of it that give you the the key to what the symbols mean. So in this case, if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 37, now this is the story of Joseph. You remember this story, Joseph, he's got all these brothers, and Joseph is a dreamer. He has these like prophetic dreams, and he tells his brothers about them. His brothers get all mad, they sell him into slavery, if you remember that. And this is one of the accounts from this story of Joseph's dream. It says, uh, he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, what does this remind you of? It reminds you of the very same set of symbols that we just saw in the book of Revelation. And if you go back to the story in Genesis, what those symbols can only mean is that this, this represents the people of Israel. Because Joseph, he has 11 brothers. He's got a mom and a dad, the son of the moon. And if you read through the story, and you, I'm not going to do this for you tonight, but if you read through the story, you find out that this dream eventually comes true. And it's, it's Joseph's family, the people of Israel, who eventually come and bow down to him. And if you read on in Revelation 12 with kind of that, that, that perspective in mind, you can see how the woman does represent Israel in this, in this chapter. So don't get scared of the symbols. Don't get scared of the symbols. The Bible itself is the guide to knowing what they mean. And that actually leads to a fourth characteristic here, which is that the book of Revelation is a book that's rooted in the Old Testament. Uh, So there are more allusions to the Old Testament than in any other book in the whole Bible. Some have calculated there's over 500 places in Revelation where some part of the Old Testament is alluded to. And what this means is that Revelation, it's it's the capstone. I mean, it ties together all the other counsels of God. 
in order to bring them to their ultimate conclusion. And there's a, a quick little slide here that just gives you a, a taster of this. And I, I don't have time to walk through all this. I'm not even sure you can see it because it's a little, uh, little small. But just, you know, let me give you a couple of examples. <laughs> you remember in the book of Genesis, like the way the story starts is that mankind falls into sin and they're denied access to the tree of life. Well, then you jump to the very, very last book of the Bible in Revelation. The very end of Revelation says that mankind is given access back to the tree of life again in the new creation. Or in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, there's a, there's, there's a curse that comes upon the world because of sin. And you go to Revelation 22, it says, no more will there be any curse. So, so the book of Revelation, in a million and one different ways, takes all the loose threads of the Bible, all, you know, many of the remaining questions that you would have if you're reading through the whole Bible, and it ties them together. And that's why, like, we can't afford to avoid this book. It's easy to say, well, the book of Revelation, it's so hard, it's so complicated, and it's true. But unless you have a grasp of this book, there's going to be a lot of things in Scripture that are probably not going to make sense. So this book is the capstone. It ties it together. And now just one final characteristic. The book of Revelation is a book with a blessing. It's a book with a blessing. So this is verse 3. Uh, and this is where uh, we're told that there's a special blessing for those who read and apply what is in the book of Revelation. And this, by the way, this is the only book of the Bible that says that there's a special blessing promised to those who read it. And the reason I want to I want to highlight this is that this actually is a really important corrective to what I believe is the perspective that a lot of us can have about this book. So I would say that, that today the subject of, of, of Revelation or even like what does the Bible say about the future uh, has a reputation for being controversial. You know, that's a, the, the kind of idea is that, well, it's just a whole lot of petty squabbling and debates about a whole lot of things that don't matter, you know. So like this thing called the millennium. Is there a millennium? Is it a pre-millennial millennium? Or is it a post-millennial thing? Or, you know, a pre-tribulational rapture? Or a mid-tribulational rapture? Or a post, you know, all these, all these debates, all these words. What does this even mean? And, you know, another reputation it has is that it's confusing. It's hard to understand what the Bible says about prophecy. It's, it's speculative, others would say, that, you know, no one really knows about the day or the hour, about when Jesus is going to kind of come back. You know, Jesus himself said that. So, you know, why even bother uh, and on top of that, I think another thing that's true of the reputation of, of Bible prophecy is that it's dangerous because there have been people down through the ages who have taken what Scripture says about the future and have then twisted it into all kinds of cultish, nasty stuff that's led a lot of people astray. And believe it or not, this is the exact same reputation that Bible prophecy had in the early church. I want to take you to one passage that shows this. So if you were to go to the book of 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, this is a part where, where Paul is writing a letter to these Christians. And, and what's happened is there have been some false teachers, and these guys have come and they have stirred up controversy and confusion because they've been generating dangerous speculation that the day of the Lord, that this kind of end times event has already happened. Now, if you read on in that letter, what you find out is that Paul does not say, oh, we, let's just completely scrap the study of Bible prophecy. What he actually does is he goes on to teach them about prophecy more accurately. He refuses to sacrifice the study of, of what the Bible says in the future just because it's controversial and hard to understand. And what he actually does is he, he explains it to them in more detail. And this is, so, this, is, this is just so different than how I think we're tempted to look at it today. The fact is, is that the Bible's view is that to study prophecy 
is an invigorating and it's a faith-building exercise. And I, I want to just show you a couple of places where th- this is what the Bible says about it. So if you were to go to the book of 2 Peter, which is actually, by the way, a book that's all about the second coming. And uh, let me just read this here. This is chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So what this is saying is prophecy actually inspires to lead a holy life. Or or another way of putting that, that prophecy actually helps Christians from being entangled in, in, in things of this world that we shouldn't be entangled in. You know, it's been said that the ship is meant to be in the water, but water is not meant to be in the ship. You know, it's not much of a ship if there's water in it. In the same way that a Christian, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. The, world, the Christian should be in the world, but the world should not be in Christians. And, you know, just um, one more verse on this. This is from the book of First John. And, and look at what this is saying. So uh, John says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now this is crazy, because what this is saying is having a view toward the second coming, toward Jesus returning again, purifies you. It purifies you. I mean, this is probably the closest thing I know in the Bible, other than just like the Holy Spirit, that's a shortcut to sanctification. Like, if you want a shortcut to like becoming more like Jesus, just like meditate on Him coming back and allow that to change the whole way that you see the world. And it's not hard to see how that would happen. I mean, if you actually think to yourself, like, man, Jesus could come back at any moment And man, like, he's coming back, not just as my Lord and as my Savior, but like the Bible ends with a wedding. The Bible ends with God, with Christ being married to his people. And and, and I don't claim to totally understand all of the profundity of that imagery, but it's a pretty profound image. It's saying that like that is the, the, the depth of love and relationship and intimacy that God wants to have with his people. And if you just live with the expectation that that is what all of history is racing toward, I mean, goodness gracious me, I think it would probably lead you to have a desire to live in a way that pleases God. That actually, to, to live in a way that, 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 that leads to a holy life. So, if you want a shortcut to sanctification, meditate on the second coming. So, you can see just from a couple of these passages from around the Bible, that it provides a correction to what I would say is the overreaction that many have had to books like the book of Revelation that just kind of says, you know, stay away, don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. This is a book with a blessing. And I think you can see now why it's a book with a blessing. So, you guys with me so far? That's uh, is that good. Okay, so, <laughs> uh, you know, Will, I just always, I appreciate your enthusiasm. As always, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, let me just recap really quick. So, Look, at all we've done is we've just looked at the first three verses. All of this, I've basically pulled just out of those three verses, and we found out five things. That this is a Christ-centered book. This is a prophetic book. This is a symbolic book. It's a book rooted in the Old Testament, and it's a book with a blessing. It's a book with a blessing. 
So if you've got those five things, uh, what I want to do now is I just want to zip through this thing, uh, give an overview of it, and um, my hope is, is that and this is not going to answer all your questions tonight, but I hope that this will actually set you up to go back and read this book and to begin to try to make a little bit of sense of it. So uh, I want to do that. The first thing I want to say as I get into that is just a quick word on humility. Um, the Revelation is, is, it probably is the hardest book to understand in the whole Bible. I'm not claiming tonight that I understand every nook and cranny of it. I, I don't. Um, and that's why down through the ages, there have actually been a number of different views that people have held on how to interpret the book. And, and these are views that are held by believing Christians, faithful Christians. Um, let me just walk you really quickly through some of the different perspectives that people have that you might come across um, really quick. There's one view. This is called the preterist view. And uh, the preterist view believes that in light of what Jesus said about the association of his second coming with the destruction of the Jewish temple, that the majority of the events in the book of Revelation refer to what happened primarily when the temple got destroyed in the year AD 70. So uh, a little bit of history there. That, that's one view. There's another view called the historicist view. And this is the perspective that the book of Revelation prophesies events that unfold during the nearly 2,000 years of church history. So from the day of Pentecost on up into the present, the book of Revelation is predicting things that we've seen happen in that time. You know, one example of this is that during the time of the Reformation, uh, many people looked at the book of Revelation and the things it says about um, this figure named the Antichrist, and they said, oh, the Antichrist must be the Roman Catholic Pope. Maybe you've heard that perspective before. Not a knock against Catholics, by the way. This is what they thought. Um, there's another view called the Futurist view, which believes that most of the prophecies in Revelation speak of things that have not happened yet, but that will take place around the time of Jesus' second coming. And uh, then there's the idealist view. And the idealist view holds that Revelation, it doesn't so much speak of particular events in history or in the future, uh, but these are spiritual truths that are broadly applicable to all times and all places. And so for those interpreters, most of the prophecies in Revelation are allegorical. So they, they have reference to things like the, the, the true meaning of Christ's death and the true meaning of his triumph over sin and, and the devil uh, and so on. Uh, now, these four views, they're not mutually exclusive. You can actually believe that the book of Revelation talks about things in the future, but that at the same time, uh, there are some timeless truths that it contains. Um, but what I just want to point out is that, that down through the ages, there have been many good um, faithful believers who have held to different perspectives. Um, so, for example, the great um, Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul, and I believe N.T. Wright, who's another famous dude you might have heard of, would hold to this, this, this first view, the preterist view. Um, you know, many of the great reformers, people like John Calvin, Martin Luther, and then others like John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, they were historicists. Um, the best preacher I've ever sat under, um, or one of the best preachers I've ever sat under, was an idealist. Um, I would identify most with the, 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 this third one, the futurist perspective, and can name others who, who do that as well. Um, and so I, just, I bring all this up because I, I want to say that like my job here tonight is not to kind of persuade you, oh, I'm right, everyone else is wrong. Um, but just to say that like, it's important to approach this book with humility. Um, there's not a lot of place for just being overly dogmatic. Um, and every Christian ought to admit that there are things in this book that we're not going to fully understand until Jesus comes back to show us exactly how it all goes together. So that's my little disclaimer for you. And I hope that's, uh, I hope that's helpful. And we want to be charitable to people who would hold a different perspective. So, uh, I also say that just because I'm going to just whip through this book, and it's impossible for me to do that without kind of letting a little of my own colors be nailed to the mask, just to, you know, I can't really talk about the book unless I kind of bring in how I, how I would look at it. So, um, but the point is, don't listen to me. Go back to the Bible, wrestle with the text yourself, and just come to your own conclusions. So... 
without further ado, here we go. <laughs> so the first thing I want to do is I'm going to point out what, to, what I believe is the key verse that unfolds this whole book. So if you go to the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 19, it says, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Read that one more time. It says, write, therefore, this is, this is uh, John being spoken to here, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So you can actually take that verse and you can divide it up into three different parts. And so there's a slide for this here. So the first thing John is told is, write what you have seen. Now that's past tense. And as you'll see in a minute, this corresponds to what's given in chapter 1. Then he's told, write what is now. This is present tense. This is what you'll see in chapters 2 and 3. And then he's told, write what will take place later. And this refers to the future. And this is the, the, the bulk of the book, chapters 4 through 22. So you've got actually past, present, and future. And I want to walk through uh, this, this very outline that Revelation gives of itself. So uh, the very first one here, what you have seen, past tense, this is chapter 1. So we already know, you know, John's been exiled to Patmos because of his faith. The rest of chapter 1 tells you how while he's on this island, he has a vision of the risen Lord Jesus. He sees Jesus, and, and, and in this, this appearance to him, Jesus is exalted. He's like dazzling to behold. He's, he's, he's terrifying to behold. And, and, and you can read that, but the most important thing that you want to see is, in, is the things that Jesus says about himself. The things that Jesus says about himself. So in verses 17 and 18, he tells John, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So what this means is that the Jesus John sees is the Jesus who has been to the cross, who has risen from the dead, and who now has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so what this means is that chapter 1 speaks of what Jesus has already accomplished in the past. And this matters because what we're going to find out is that it's on the basis of what Jesus has done in the past that the whole subsequent saga of this book can unfold. So that's the first part of the outline. What, is, what, is already, you know, what you have seen, past tense, chapter 1. Second thing John is told to write is what is now. And this is what is referred to in chapters 2 and 3. So if you go to chapters 2 and 3, um, this is a part where John dictates seven letters that Jesus gives. And he writes these letters to real historical churches that, that existed during John's day. And all seven of those churches existed in a place called Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And this is the place where John, uh, we believe, ministered during the last part of his life. So these are places that, that might have actually known who John was personally. And uh, the illustration that comes to mind when I think about this is that, you know, sometimes if you go to a church, you'll hear about churches working with church consultants. And church consultants uh, are people who come in from the outside, and they're kind of these experts who they kind of evaluate what they see. And they say, well, here's stuff you're doing well, here's stuff that you're doing poorly. And um, believe it or not, I'm actually not about to tell you that in this chapter that Jesus is like a church consultant. Because a church consultant is a mere man who sees things through a subjective set of glasses. Jesus is the Son of God. And the, the, the words that he gives to these churches unveil the true reality and the spiritual state of these different bodies of believers. 
So what you, what you find as you study these seven letters is that they actually showcase for you what it looks like for God's people to be on track and what it looks like for them to go astray. So here's the seven churches that uh, you'll see up on the screen. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but the very first church is the church in a town called Ephesus. And you might say that Ephesus is the careless church because this is a church that we find out is so busy with getting their doctrine right. You know, they're probably very much into things like Bible study. They've fallen out of love with Jesus. He tells them, you have forgotten your first love. Consider the height from which you've fallen. You know, in other words, like, if you don't actually love me, you have nothing. You have nothing. The careless church. The next one is the church in Smyrna. And you might call this the crowned church. There are only two churches in these seven that are not given any word of rebuke. Jesus only gives them a word of commendation. And Smyrna is one of those two. This is a church that remains faithful in persecution, and they're given a message to persevere. There's the church in Pergamon, which is what you might call the compromised church. So if the church in, in Ephesus was too concerned with right doctrine, the church in Pergamon was probably not concerned enough. What you find out is that they allowed false teaching to come in so that they had mixed with the world. They were a little bit like the ship with the water inside the ship. There's the church in Thyatira, which you might call the corrupt church, a church that's become so worldly that sexual immorality has come to take up roost in it, and Jesus rebukes them for that. There's the church in Sardis, which you could call the feeble church, and, and Jesus says that this is a church that has a reputation for being alive, but is actually dead. And I, I sure hope you've not had the, the misfortune of being a part of a church like that. I hope and pray that Thrive never has that reputation of being alive but actually dead. And I, you know, I sometimes wonder <clears throat> about the church in Sardis and, and whether that might compare to just places you see today where, you know, there are these huge, beautiful cathedrals or churches with big, massive budgets, but there may not really be any spiritual life in them. There may not actually be genuine, heartfelt belief in Jesus. There's the church in Philadelphia, and this is the other church that is the, one of the only two that has no rebuke spoken against it. This is the faithful church. And it's a church that's characterized by not being outwardly strong or impressive, but this is a church that's kept God's word and has not denied his name. And then one final one is the church in Laodicea. And this is the foolish church. This is a church that Jesus describes as neither being spiritually hot or spiritually cold, but as lukewarm. And it thinks that they have all that they need. And Jesus tells them, if you actually knew how bankrupt and empty and helpless you are, and he invites them to come to him and repent and receive from Jesus what they truly, really need, which is him. So those are the seven churches. And you might step back from all this and you might ask, well, why are these here? I mean, if this is a book about the future primarily, you know, none of these churches exist anymore. You know, what, what value are these letters to us? One thing that you can say to that is that notice that at the end of each letter, it, it has this repeated line. It says, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, the contents of these letters have value for Christians all down through the ages. And, and if you were to ask in what way, I would say that, well, it seems that they help God's people avoid just common pitfalls. Common pitfalls that can beset a body of believers in order that they might purify themselves in anticipation of Christ's return. I mean, if Jesus is really coming back, then aren't you so thankful 
he's kind of provided a little bit of a, of a guide of what it looks like to be walking in a worthy manner in preparation for him to come back. That's what these seven letters speak of. So you've got the first part, the past tense, what uh, you have seen. The second part, what is now, present tense. And now finally, there's this last part, what will take place later. And this is chapters 4 through 22. It's the lion's share of the book. And the, so, so <clears throat> I'm going to sort of break this down a little bit more so that you can make a little bit more sense of it. There's a little outline uh, of this last section here. And in chapters 4 and 5, um, the first thing that this section starts out with is a scene where John is taken in to the heavenly throne room. In chapters 6 through 19, it's a series of judgments. In chapter 20, there's this thing called the millennium. And then in chapters 21 through 22, there's the new creation. So let me just, let me walk through these. Starting with this first little section in chapters 4 and 5. And actually here, if, you're, if you've got a Bible, follow along with me here. I'm going to read uh, just the f- very first part of chapter 4. So in chapter 4, the first verse says, and this is John talking, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So the next two chapters, John like literally gets a little glimpse in, inside like, what God's throne room in heaven looks like. And the scene that he sees is just so incredible and mind-blowing that you can barely kind of visualize what, what, he, what, he, what he says. What he sees is he sees millions upon millions of, of, of creatures in all creation worshiping God, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in verse 11, we find out that the reason that they're ascribing all these, all these things to God is that God is the creator of all things. All things have their being in him, and they're held together in him. I mean, you can't even take another breath unless God gives it to you right now. So in chapter 4, God's being praised as the creator. In chapter 5, the scene changes. And John witnesses in the throne room, he sees a scroll that comes from the hand of God, and it says that the scroll is sealed up and it has writing on both sides. Now, this is important. You might want to pause and ask yourself, well, what does the scroll mean? And this is one of those places where you have to go back to the Old Testament to figure out what the scroll might mean. And if you were to do that, you would land in the book of Jeremiah chapter 32. Um, Because in the book of Jeremiah chapter 32, God commands the prophet Jeremiah uh, to buy a field from his cousin. Now, this is a crazy thing to do because at the time, the Babylonians, this enemy empire, they're they're, they're literally in the land of Israel and they're destroying the whole countryside. And so, like, Jeremiah is literally told by God to go and buy a piece of the battlefield. You You wouldn't want to buy real estate in that kind of market. And God has him do it. And the reason God has him do it is because he knows that one day he's going to redeem the situation. He'll bring his people back from exile and that land will have value again. So this is like a prophetic picture of what God's about to do. And when you study that chapter, what you find out is that the deed of purchase that Jeremiah draws up for the purchase of that piece of land appears to have been a deed that was sealed up and that had writing on both sides. Therefore, the cosmic scroll that John sees and can only be opened by Jesus, the lamb who was slain, would seem to be nothing less than the title deed to heaven and to earth. And this is why Jesus is the only one who's worthy to open it. He takes the scroll, and as he does this, every creature in heaven and on earth praises him, not just because of his role in creation, but because of his role in redemption. 
And this launches the whole rest of the book. In chapter 6, Jesus begins to open one by one the seals on the scroll. And as he opens the seals, it inaugurates a period of God's judgment on the earth for human sin. And this runs from chapters 6 to 19. Now, this is kind of like the, 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 the part of the book that's kind of looked at as like the most scary because there are all these crazy judgments. And it is crazy. Like if you read through them, they're, 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 they're pretty strong judgments. What, what does this all mean? Why is, what is this doing here? Well, I want to step back and just get a little context for what the judgments are about. And if you were here last week, you are probably one step ahead of me already. Because what I'm going to do here is point you back to the book of Daniel, uh, book of Daniel chapter 9. In the book of Daniel, as, as was spoken last week, God decrees that there's a set period of time during which there are a number of events that were to take place that pertain not to just anything, but specifically to Jerusalem, we're told, and to the Jewish people. And that period of time is said to consist of 70 weeks. And you know, without going into all the details like we did last week, just, just know that the word week here would likely refer to a, a period of seven years. So if you put that together, what, what we're finding out here is that this this, this timetable that's given in Daniel chapter 9 is for a period of 490 years. And God is saying that in those 490 years, there's going to be a bunch of stuff that will take place. And as you read on, you find out that the first 69 of those seven-year periods, 483 years, that takes you to the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. I mean, this is crazy. You read this book, and what you find out is like it actually takes you right up to the day that Jesus shows up to, to present himself as king to the Jewish people and to die on the cross for our sins. And uh, that's, that's why Jesus was like so harsh against th those who failed to recognize him, because he says, look, you know, if you had read your Bibles, you would have known exactly when I was supposed to arrive. But the thing is, if you study this carefully, what you find out is there's still seven years of those 490 years that have not been fulfilled. The 483 years takes you up to Jesus' death, and then there's still a missing period of seven years that is yet to be fulfilled. And now for a number of reasons, and I'm not going to have time to go into all this now, I believe that the remaining so-called 70th week of Daniel, this period of seven years, this shows up in the book of Revelation. And it's a period of time where God judges the inhabitants on the, on the earth uh, between chapter 6 and 19. Let me just point out like a couple of places here that, that just kind of make me say this. So if you were to go to chapter 11, verse 2, and then chapter 13, verse 5, I don't think this is on the screen, but just go with me if you want to. John speaks of two, and I, I believe these are separate periods, of 42 months each. Now, 42 months, this is no accident. This is three and a half years, so exactly half of seven years. You put those both together, you have, you have a total of seven years. And, and this, I believe, this is the missing 70th week of Daniel that was spoken of way back in the Old Testament. And God is saying that this now, in the time yet future, is when that last seven years will be fulfilled. So, this is this period of judgment. And, and this has sometimes been called the tribulation period. Um, and it, and I, I don't want to like spend a lot of time trying to make a super precise timeline of how all these events unfold and, and what the relationship of all of them is. But just in general, if you kind of want to walk through these in a way that makes a little bit of sense, the first th uh, four chapters, chapters six through nine, I would say give you the first three and a half years of that tribulation period. Chapters 10 through 14 are kind of an interlude that give you the midpoint of that time. And then the last chapter, 16, uh, 15 through 19, give you the last three and a half years. 
And just before moving on, just a couple of quick things to, to say about this period of judgment. So the first thing is that if you read the book, you find out that this, this period of judgment is divided into three different groups. There's, there's the seven seal judgments. There's the seven trumpet judgments. There's the seven bowl judgments. And, and <clears throat> different ways that people have looked at these, but my conviction would be that these sets of judgments are not a rigid sequence, but that actually the seal judgments mostly given in chapter 6, these are an overview of the entire seven-year period. And the seventh seal, which cons uh, consists of the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet consists of the seven bowls. And the reason, one, one reason um, that, that I think <clears throat> the Bible would support this is that if you go outside the book of Revelation, um, like uh, we saw last week in Matthew 24, Jesus describes the events before his return as labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. And labor pains increase in frequency and intensity the closer you get to delivery. And so the judgments likewise increase in intensity and frequency the further along you go in the tribulation. And what's actually crazy about this is that what this means is that like God is holding back his wrath until like finally there is, there is no longer any more chances. But he, he, he prolongs his judgment to give people time to repent and turn to him. So that's one thing to say. Second thing to say, one question that's often raised about this period in, in, in biblical history is what about the Antichrist? Um, that's a question that always gets asked. Um, and, and I believe that the scripture does teach that there really will be such a person who is, is uh, called the Antichrist. If you want a really good description of who this guy is, then just go and read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Antichrist, if you put a bunch of different passages of scripture together, is shown to be Satan's final scheme to come against the purposes of God. He'll be a ruler on the earth who will be empowered by the devil to persecute the people of God. But he'll ultimately be condemned, he'll be defeated, and the chapter that speaks most of him in Revelation is chapter 13. In that chapter, he's the first beast. There are two beasts in that chapter, but he's the first beast um, that you read about in Revelation 13. And then finally, there's this question of, like, what about salvation? You know, so this is a time of judgment, but like, isn't God a God who doesn't will that any should perish, but that all are saved and come to repentance? The answer is yes, absolutely. And you actually see this in the book of Revelation. We find out that even though this is a time of God's wrath, his heart is still to the very end that all people would be saved. And Revelation makes it clear that there are many who will be saved during this time on the earth. So if you go to chapter 7, Chapter 7 tells you that there's a great number of Jews and Gentiles who are going to be saved in that time period. And that, that group that will be saved in that time is described as a great multitude that no one can count. So then, racing on to the end, you come to chapters 19 and 20. In chapter 19, Jesus returns at the end of the seven years. He defeats his enemies, and then he reigns on the earth, and it's said to be for a period of 1,000 years. And so that's what's called the millennium. Following the 1,000-year period, the dead are judged. And the picture that John gives of this um, is, is actually so important. I want to read it out loud and just let it speak for itself. And so I'm, I'm reading here from the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Uh, this is verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne in him who is seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. 
The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We serve a God who's a God of love and a God of justice. And this is the sobering picture that Scripture gives of those who reject Christ. Jesus has died on the cross so that the only way that anyone will suffer this fate is literally over his dead body. He has held nothing back to ransom, redeem, and save even sinners and rebels like us who don't deserve it. But this passage, I mean, it's sobering, and it's an urgent call to those of us who would call ourselves believers to not hide the message of salvation that we have been entrusted with. So the book of Revelation speaks of a final judgment. But then in the last two chapters, it speaks of what happens not uh, for, for those that, you, that we've just read about, but for those who have died and, and, or, or who, have, who have lived believing in Jesus. These last two chapters, chapters 21 and 22, this depicts what theologians have sometimes called the eternal state. This is following this period of a thousand years. Um, after that's over, it says that God's people will dwell with him forever. And I'm going to read some verses from here too and simply let these speak for themselves. This is from Revelation 21. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, the earth and the sky. Uh, 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 oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> then, uh, n- not this one. That one. Then I, saw, <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain the old order of things has passed away. And this is why the book of Revelation is a book of hope. And then just very, very, very last thing is just the very end of the book, chapter 22, ends with Jesus three times saying the words, I am coming soon. And the reason I think the book ends with this is that this book is a summons to every single believer to wait with hope and with joy for the great, great day on which Jesus comes back. I mean, just by way of closing, I just want to conclude with just a story I heard once that actually really helped me understand what, what does it actually look like to live with an anticipation of Jesus' return? So there's an old, this is an old, uh, old story about these fishermen, and these fishermen are out doing their thing, and there's a storm that comes, <clears throat> and it looks as though the boat's going to be lost. You know, they're, they're trying to radio into land, and, and, and it turns out that, the, that they come through the storm Everyone has survived. They're able to radio into land that they have survived. And so the whole town comes out to the dock to wait for these fishermen to come home. And so the first mate and the skipper are on this boat. They're coming into shore. They, begin, they can begin to see, <clears throat> see the land on the horizon. 
And so the skipper takes his binoculars and he looks and he says, oh, look, you know, I see my wife. And there she is waiting on the dock for me to come. And then the first mate says, well, you know, hey, you know, looking through those binoculars, can you see my wife? Is she out there also waiting for me? And he, he looks and he says, well, unfortunately, no, I, I don't think I see her there. Well, so eventually the ship comes into shore and, and they, they all get off the boat. The skipper's wife is there to receive him, to, 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 to give him a big old hug and to say, I'm so glad you're alive. The first mate, on the other hand, he just kind of walks with uh, his head down, kind of slumped shoulders back to his house, opens up the front door, and he finds his wife, his bride, sitting inside in front of the fireplace just reading a book. She sees him come in, she looks up, and she says, oh, I'm so glad, honey, that you're home. I was waiting for you. And the first mate says, well, <laughs> I'm glad you were waiting for me, but the skipper's wife, she was watching for him. There's a difference between waiting and watching. It's one thing to say, man, well, you know, I'm just kind of going to bide my time and just kind of live life my own way. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back. You know, I know it'll be someday. I think the Bible would call us not just to wait, but to actually watch. To watch with expectation in a way that changes the way that you live. Because Jesus is coming back and he's coming soon. So that's the book of Revelation.